I don't know how you feel about parties. I'm of the opinion that a party can just be a party without any sort of a theme. But a lot of parties have themes, you know. Uh, we found with our kids, especially for birthday parties, you know, you want to have a theme. And in this regard, this is one of those areas where girls are maybe sometimes easier than boys. Because it seems like girls often want the princess party. It's so stereotypical, right? Princess. Disney princess. I'm getting a glare from my daughter here. <laughs> or unicorns. You know, as long as it's pink and fluffy and, you know, a lot of times that was easy. With our son, uh, we had to exercise a bit more creativity sometimes. Uh, one year, our son Connor, uh, we said, well, what kind of birthday do you want to have? And he said, castle. Castle? What does that even mean? And so we went with it. You know, we had a castle theme, and um, I was kind of proud of that one. In fact, we, we devised some fun games, and we decorated the, the house, and everything was castle. Uh, one year, he wanted pirate. We'll do a pirate theme, and so we did pirates, you know, and, and some of these are still kind of, you know, stereotypical themes, but when you have a theme like that, sometimes that can be really helpful because it unifies everything else, you know. That theme is going to inform what the decorations look like. That theme is going to inform what the food is like. That theme is going to inform what sort of games we play, maybe what sort of songs we sing, you know, whatever. That theme becomes a really unifying presence for everything else that happens. It's kind of the centerpiece of the whole party, whether or not you literally use a centerpiece on your table or not. Uh, keep that in mind because what we're going to look at this morning is a very strong theme. It's a very strong theme for John as you turn back to the, the letter of 1 John, who we've been studying together. 1 John, we're going to be in chapter 2. This is a big theme for John. But I think it can be argued this is a big theme for the Bible. And in fact, it's a big theme for Christianity. And if it's not, we're really missing something. Uh, and we're going to jump to a couple of different passages this morning. Again, instead of addressing 1 John just sort of start to finish linearly, that's hard to get your tongue around, isn't it? Linearly. <laughs> We're, we're moving around somewhat thematically, and so we'll, we'll look at a couple passages, but starting out in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. Stop for a second. Some of you may be scanning up ahead. Wait, what commandment are we talking about? Well, as it turns out, we're talking about a commandment that he's going to mention in a couple of verses here, but he, he sort of front loads it with all of this. This is an important thing, but he starts out by saying, I'm not writing you something new. I think that's important. That's important for us to remember, to recall. He says, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And then in verse 8, he says almost the opposite. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And we've read this before. I'm going to lead you right down the garden path. Who is the true light? Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And so what John writes here is brilliant. He says, this is not a new command. 
And yet, to a certain degree, it is a new command, isn't it? Because it now has light and shape in the light, Jesus Christ. And, and so it, it has perhaps more force, perhaps more meaning. But you know, we're going to get around to talking about love here. He's going to jump in in this next verse. But he starts out by saying, listen, let's just be clear. This isn't a new command. Uh, John, in his gospel, in chapter 13, records one of the things that Jesus said when, when he's talking about the, the most important commandment. You know, And you remember, he says, the, the chief commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You know, it really engages your, your intellect, your will, and your emotion. And he says, all of these should, should love the Lord your God fully, wholly. But then he says immediately afterward, the second command, and it's interesting because nobody asked him about what the top two commands were. The second command is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say something really interesting. All of the law and the prophets hang on these things. Isn't that amazing? All of the law and the prophets hang on these. As you go back to the Mosaic law that God gave the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, in Exodus, in Leviticus, all of these laws fleshed out, that the law sort of re-given to them in Deuteronomy. I mean, it's, you won't really find any of that that doesn't have its root in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, there's some crazy stuff in the law. Stuff like, okay, if you dig a hole and one of your neighbor's animals falls in your hole and dies, you should pay for the neighbor's animal, right? But do you see how that has its roots in love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, it's essentially saying, look, if one of your animals, especially in an agrarian society, if one of your animals, if you lost one of these very valuable animals in your neighbor's hole, you'd be upset, wouldn't you? Take care of it. I mean, all go through and look. It all has its, its genesis in one of those things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Worship him as such. Treat him as holy as such. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That's it. And so that's why John here says, this isn't a new command. And yet it's kind of new because in the light of the appearance of Jesus Christ our Lord, it's taken new force. And he finally gets to it in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So he starts out here by, by using the negative case. You know? And he's already talked about walking in light. You know, we sort of started there and, and a little more generally. And, and one of the things that proves, remember we're talking about living proof. John says frequently all throughout this letter, if you say you know him, but you do this, you're a liar. If you really know him, you'll do this. And we started with walking in the light, and he circles back to that idea here, but ties it now to this concept of how we treat other people. Whoever 
says he's in the light and hates his brother, he's actually in darkness. Now, that makes a certain amount of sense, right? And hate's such a strong word. I mean, I don't hate people. But he uses this as the, the counterpoint to love. Conversely, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. I love the use of that word abides there. Not just walks in some light, not sort of dances in and out of the light, but lives right there. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. We talked about this when we talked about light and dark, you know, and how hard it is sometimes in, in the dark when it's like really, really dark. When you can't see your hand in front of your face. Walking around is tough, isn't it? You know, arms out, you know, hoping that you don't bump into something and, and worried that you might trip over something or step on something and, you know. But he says, if you're living in the light, you don't need to worry about stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John takes this to to an interesting place. I mean, he extrapolates this in a way that we might not immediately anticipate that he's going to. You know, he doesn't just say here that if you hate your brother, if you don't love your brother, then you're bad. You're naughty, you know. And what he actually says is, when you're in that state of not loving your brother, you're not abiding in light. In fact, you're abiding in darkness, and you yourself are now at risk of stumbling. You've caused yourself a stumbling risk. Now, I'm not sure we should suggest that loving our neighbor as ourselves is all just about us, you know. And yet, John does sort of take it there. He says, you've put yourself in the darkness, and you're going to trip. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. And here again, living proof. You say that you're in the light. Going back to the beginning of his letter, he talked about it. Don't, don't say that you know God and then live in darkness. If you know God, you'll be in light. But now here, you know, he's fleshing this out a bit more. He's drilling down with a bit more specificity now. He says, okay, if you say you're in light, but you behave this way, you hate people around you. And I, I think we all understand this, but I, I like to say it often just in case. You know, I don't know where, where you are in your knowledge of studying the Bible, but when he talks about brother here, uh, hating your brother, he's not only talking about males. He's not suggesting that you should love your brother, but it's okay to, to dislike females. You know, that's not what he's saying. Again, he's writing to a body of believers who are all men and women, fully adopted sons in that they have a full inheritance. They have a share. They're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. This was part of what was so radical about the gospel message, especially in their world. It, it 
it eludes us sometimes because, you know, we're so enlightened, he says with his tongue in his cheek. But, you know, in some regards, I mean, we've, we've come a long way, baby, you know. But back then, I mean, it was important for men and for women to understand that there was no separation between them with regard to their relationship with God, that they were all sons, that they were all co-heirs. And it's the same way here. I mean, he's, he's talking about loving your brother, but he, he means brothers and sisters, you know. And who, he who says that they love their brother, that they love their sister, or he, he who doesn't do that, rather, who says that they're walking in light, abiding in light even, but they don't do this thing, well, they're wrong. They're just wrong. Turn to chapter 3, verse 11, because here we get a, an extended section that continues to flesh this out. 1 John 3, verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He says this same thing again. It's not a new command. Frankly, it's an old command. Uh, we need to be very careful. There, there sometimes is this thinking that can creep into our minds that is, frankly, bordering on heretical when we try to paint a, a picture of the God of the Old Testament being really different from the God of the New Testament. You know, The God of the Old Testament was a real meanie I mean, there are some, when you take this to its, to its really unhealthy conclusion, there are people who have suggested that they're two different gods, that they're two different personalities, and thank goodness Jesus came because he was the true God. The God of the Old Testament was a pretender. That's dangerous. But part of what it misses is the love that is there in the Old Testament. As Jesus himself said, all that law stuff, it all hangs on love either love for God or love for other people. So here again, he says, this isn't a new commandment. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. <laughs> you know, the old story of Cain and Abel where they both brought sacrifices. And, and there's clearly something going on that the narrative uh, doesn't necessarily tell us in Genesis. But it's made very clear here, among some other places, that what Cain did before the murder even was wrong. And he should have known it. But the fact that God didn't accept his incorrect, his wrong sacrifice and did except Abel's. He decided he would take that out on Abel because that makes perfect sense, you know. Why did he kill him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That's a fun thought. <laughs> we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So he's talked about abiding in light versus darkness. Now he talks about abiding in life versus death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. These are strong words. 
These are powerful words. They're words that, I mean, if we're really paying attention to them, sting a little, perhaps. He says you, you can't say that you are living in light or that you're living in life and then not love your brothers. This is the centerpiece of all of it. So what does all that mean? I mean, what does it actually mean? Jesus also says, they'll know you're my disciples. How? By your love. Yeah. We had a song about that. Remember, they'll know we are Christians by our love. But it actually comes from that statement of of Jesus's. Where he says, this is how they're going to know that you're my disciples. Because of love. In other words, this is the theme. This is the, the centerpiece. And as John so brilliantly points out here, it's not a new thing. It's an old thing. I mean, it goes way back to the very beginning. He even cites Cain and Abel, just the second generation of humanity, you know. He says this has been a problem all the way back then. Lack of love leads you here. But we are to be organized around. We are to have as our theme, love. That's how we know. That's that living proof that we are abiding in light, that we are living in life, not in darkness, not in death, but in light and life. That is indeed the proof, the living proof, that we are truly disciples of, followers of His. Is this love. That's the unifying theme. And if you don't see that all throughout the Bible, you're not paying enough attention. But we wouldn't be the first people to do that. I mean, it's why Jesus instructs people in his time, listen, don't you understand all of the law? It all hangs on that love. It's all about that love. Now, a couple things. The word, and I think you've surmised this, but the word used throughout this passage for love is, in fact, let me just ask, what's the Greek word, do you suppose? Agape. Don't we love that word? We especially love that word when we are the objects of agape. When we are to give agape, it does become a little bit more difficult. It does become a bit more hard. But just to remind you, in Greek, there are a number of different words for love, but that word agape is the most powerful. It is entirely unconditional. It is entirely without strings attached. It is not a thing that is based on or has anything to do with warm, fuzzy feelings. And when I say that, I'm not bad-mouthing warm, fuzzy feelings. I like warm, fuzzy feelings. Aren't warm, fuzzy feelings great? That's fine. It's just not agape. Agape is love even when the object of agape is frankly undeserving of it. In fact, let's read the next verse here. 
as John continues to sort of define this, because, you know, we can leave this in a very nebulous place and say, okay, love one another, got it. But he says in verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Hmm. Remember Romans 5.8. For God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is what agape looks like. That's what's good for Paul McDonald to remember. Again, it's another one of those passages where we can abstract it and say us, but I, you know, I encourage you to put yourself as an individual in that picture. And for Paul McDonald, I need to be reminded that Jesus Christ didn't die for me because I was adorable. Clearly I am. <laughs> but that was never why Jesus died for me. In fact, he died for me when I had nothing. When I had absolutely no merit of my own, especially with regard to him and his perfect righteousness and holiness. Any righteousness that I could have produced on my own looked like filthy rags next to the white purity of my God. And that is when Jesus Christ in love died for me. And that is when he died for you. And so when we talk about agape and what it looks like, this is how we know agape, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Literally? Well, perhaps... But the reality is most of us will never be brought to a point where there is a literal need to give up our physical lives on behalf of somebody else. And so I don't want to just make it that because that leaves us feeling perhaps really safe. Okay, sure. I'd, I'd be willing to lay down my life if needed. And then to ourselves, thank goodness it's unlikely to be needed, you know. <laughs> I'm doing good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in all regards. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Ah. Oh, okay. You see how that's not maybe a, a, a laying down of my physical life, but it's a laying down of my life. It is loving someone like myself. It is even putting the needs of another someone above my own, as the Lord Jesus Christ did for me. Little children, and again, there's such fondness in this letter. I don't want us to miss that either. There's such love for who he's writing to. He used beloved in our earlier passage in here. Little children, I love this. It's so sweet. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. He's sort of speaking of a a conscience being seared, or conversely, not. He's sort of indicating, and again, this is part of the power of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? We've been promised that the Holy Spirit, among other things, will convict of sin. But he says here, if if your heart is truly clean, if your heart doesn't condemn you, you have confidence before God. You're fine. And whatever we ask, verse 22, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. He circles back to this thought now too of commandment keeping, of obedience. We talked about that before. And I know you're all really still pondering obedience because you love it so much, you know. (laughs) But I hope you are. But again, with some more specificity now. We keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, just so that we don't lose this, you know. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. It's funny how He doubles up that thought. So again, that there's no miscommunication. Here's His commandment, that we love one another like He commanded us. It's a little repetitive, but sometimes we need that. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Again, this is how people will know that you're my followers, that you're my disciples when you love one another. When you love one another. I love when the Bible says there's no law against this stuff. You know? I mean, it's somewhat difficult to find someone witness sacrificial agape love and say, that's stupid. Now, sometimes you will. Sometimes you'll hear it. I mean, someone who is maybe particularly selfish will say, you shouldn't have done that. You should be looking out for you. If you don't look out for you, nobody's gonna, dummy. (laughs) I mean, we'll hear this sometime, but I, I love how Scripture just says there's no law against these things. Because we all, thanks to common grace, we all, because we are made in God's image who is love, we get sort of instinctually that that love is good. But to really do it in word, not, uh, not just in word, rather, but in deed, to live this way, sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes maybe we struggle with what that means, you know. I love that very simple example that John gives in the midst of that. If you have stuff, and maybe he wrote that because this was an issue in some of the churches to whom he was writing. But he says, if you have stuff, if you have an ability to help and you know somebody's in need and you don't help them, don't tell me you love them. Don't tell me you're living in love. That's not true. And I think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can turn there if you want. I'll read it to you if you don't. 
starting in verse 4. There's a whole list of markers of love. And so if love is the centerpiece, if love is the theme of the party for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and ought to inform everything. Here's just a beautiful checklist. And I know we are so familiar with this passage that sometimes we read it and we just, yeah, that's about the thousandth time I've heard that. It's nice. I like it. It's more than just nice. I want to invite you, if I could give you homework this week, to sit and reflect on this daily And do some hard work with what this looks like in your life. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's a good checklist. Now, we don't keep every element of this perfectly. One person does that. Our God. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is God. Our Heavenly Father, who is God. The Holy Spirit, who is God. God does this perfectly. I understand that we break down. I mean, to say, I've never been irritable, or for you to tell me you've never been irritable. Probably not true. Yeah. But he is talking about a pattern of life here. And that there are some of these things, and, and I, I love to put this together with what John says. Don't just talk about love. Love. Don't just say it. Do it. Well, what does doing it look like? Well, I love the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because it's a whole bunch of things that it does and doesn't look like. For me, to be just brutally honest with you, for me, I mean, it's one of the very early things. Love is patient. Patience for me can be a real struggle, especially as one I've said before, I'm kind of left-brained, I'm kind of task-oriented. And boy, so if you get in the way of my task, I'm not going to have a lot of patience for that, you know. That's hard. I have to slow down sometimes and say, listen, if I'm impatient, that's not love. That's this, this centerpiece of my faith, this theme of the party this unifying element that that is everything, I can't say that I'm exhibiting that and then be impatient with my brothers and sisters. What's yours? I told you what mine is. On three, everybody shout out yours. No, we won't do that. But I think it may be helpful for you 
to do some of that work this week. To consider that. To come back to these passages in 1 John. To come back to the passage in 1 Corinthians. And read them over and over. If you're worried that you might not have the discernment or the wisdom to figure it out on your own, there's a simple answer for that too. Sit down before you read it and pray, God, I need you to convict my heart. I need you to tell me what my struggle is. Okay. He will. I promise you he will. And then think about that and consider that. This idea of love is the crux of everything that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Everything that he has done, is doing, and will do for you and I. It's the crux of our God. It's another one of those things where the Bible doesn't just teach us that God has love. The Bible teaches us God is love. Any slightest bit of love that you and I have flows out of our God. He is it. He's the source of it. And so we cannot say that we're close to Him, that we know Him intimately, that we're walking in His light, that we're walking in His life when we don't love the way Jesus Christ loves. Them's hard words, aren't they? But that's the stark reality. There's not much wiggle room here. It'd be like saying, okay, everybody, we're doing a pirate party. And then having people show up dressed like a princess. Or, you know. Didn't you read the invitation? Well, look, didn't you read this? Because as it turns out, the theme for God and His dealings with His creation. The theme for the Lord Jesus Christ and His, His salvation that He authored for you and I is love. And we are called, and not just called as a suggestion, we are, as John points out, commanded to love that same way. To love as Jesus loves. Who gave up His very life for you me. And now we're called to love that same way. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to love people who don't deserve love. I remind you, God loved you when you didn't deserve love. So it being hard doesn't, I, we, we so frequently give ourselves a pass, you know. Well, I can't love that person because they're just the worst. With regard to God, you were the worst. And that's when Jesus died for you and made you new and made you clean and washed you in the power of his own blood shed for you so that you'd be given life, so that you could put on like a garment his righteousness and wear that before your God and say, I don't have righteousness of my own, but I've got Jesus Christ's. 
That's the sort of love. When I was as ugly as ugly could be, Christ died for me. That is how we are commanded to behave. And so where is your conviction point? If you don't know right now, come back to these scriptures. Do it again and again and again, praying for God to show you what it is so that you might be convicted. But we cannot say that we're his followers and walk in hatred of our brothers and sisters. We cannot say that we're his and living in light and life if we don't love the way that he loves. Fair? We all have some work to do. Our Father God, we thank you for the conviction that your word often is. Seems like a funny thing to say. Because sometimes, God, your word convicts in a, in a way that stings. Cuts right to the truth. But here it is, God. And we confess we have even done the, the converse of, of what Scripture teaches us at times. Jesus said, people are going to know you're my disciples by the simple fact that you love each other. But so often we have gone so far as to muddy the name of our dear Savior Jesus because we claim the name, but our behavior hasn't always been particularly loving. Father, we're sorry for that. Because at the end of the day, we want to shine forth Jesus Christ like a beacon in the knowledge that our world is so needy. You've said there's one way to you. It's through Jesus Christ. But when we behave in a way that isn't befitting for a follower of yours, we make that way real hard for people. And so God, convict us. Bring us just back to this simple, unifying theme that you are love, that all of it, this ancient command is what it is to love one another. And that this is a living proof of a follower of yours. It's love. It's agape. It's laying down our very lives for those of our brothers and sisters. And when people see that, they'll be pointed to an accurate, clear view of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, for any uh, that might be with us today, whether here in our room, whether with us online, God, we recognize there may be somebody here that doesn't have a personal relationship with you. And God, maybe some of us have even kind of tarnished your reputation, but would you shine through that and help them understand that salvation is theirs today, that your love for them is absolutely theirs for the claiming because you've already done the work as Jesus came, lived perfectly and righteously, but gave himself up as a sacrifice for us and died and was put into the tomb and then came back to life 
That that is how we can be saved, by resting fully in that. To know personally and experientially that love you have shown out for your world. Pray that today would be the day that they would accept that. Understand it, be drawn to you, and accept that power of that salvation that is all bound up in your love. And for the rest of us, God, whether we've been walking with you for a year or 99 years, we pray you continue to convict us where in our lives we are straying from what love looks like. We are commanded to love. This is our theme. We're not always perfect at walking it. So show us this day where we need to get back on that straight and narrow and live lives of love. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.